Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today is a special episode. We have another interview today for you. Um, this interview is with Dr. Damien Basich. Uh, Dr. Basich is a professor of Spanish languages um, and history at San Jose State University. He has a wonderful website called CaliforniaFrontier.net that has a lot of amazing California history stuff. And I brought him on to talk about the Mexican War for Independence, um, as well as uh, kind of the, to sum up the Spanish legacy in uh, Alta California, which would very soon become uh, California proper. Um, and this will be kind of the uh, punctuation mark at the end of the section on the Spanish period of California's history. Um, after this episode, we'll be moving on to uh, the Mexican period of Spanish history, which is uh, quite a bit shorter and uh, will end, obviously, with the Mexican-American War. So uh, we're moving right along. Um, I'm looking forward to these next few episodes. Uh, the Mexican period is very interesting, and I have a few guests that I've lined up uh, for that period as well uh, to give us some more context and understanding. So let's go meet Dr. Basich. <music> Welcome, everybody, to the History of California podcast. I've got a special guest on today, Dr. Damien Besich. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. You got it. Um, and we're going to be talking about a lot of different things. Um, our most recent podcast was about ranchos, and so we're kind of segueing into uh, a change in government that's happening. Um, and so um, I brought our guest on to kind of help us understand and make that transition well. Um, Dr. Basich runs a website called the California Frontier Project. Is that right? That's right, California Frontier Project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I started that uh, because I, I've been working on California, especially Spanish and Mexican California history for several years. And um, I had friends whose kids were in fourth grade and going to schools in California and they wanted they would always ask me to help them with their lessons and things like that. And then, of course, I uh, have my own children who started to get older and, and go into school. And so I figured that the best way to help people, to help a lot of people, was to put out information on the Internet because that's where people go to search for things. So it started that way. And I also, I also belong to the... California Missions Foundation and every year I would go to their conferences and hear really fascinating things that I would never have guessed about the California pre-statehood era and I just thought wow there's got to be a way to share this kind of information with people that's people who didn't go to the conference and and that's not in a scholarly journal let's say so that's that's how that came about, and then it's it's just it's been going ever since. Yeah, it's it's an amazing uh, website, and I recommend you all visit it. It's um, you know I I go there when I'm starting to explore a subject, and I, I see what I can find, and it's a beginning. You know, I always say that you know it's always good to start with stuff that's the most accessible before you try to dip into scholarly research or uh, you know those those massive history books that you know sometimes are recommended. Um, but, right. Yeah. And I, I kind of feel the same way because on a lot of those things, I'm not an expert. 
And so to, to write about something is a great way for me to learn about it, right? Maybe I don't know anything about it and I'll go look it up and study it and then write about it and then I know. Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the transition between uh, Spanish control of this part of North America and the, the War of Independence. So I would hope you could give the listeners a little bit of a background. So what, uh, what, what precipitated uh, this war for independence that started in the early 19th century? Yeah, uh, quite a few things. And I, I think it's good to see California and especially the Spanish presence in California within the bigger context of Latin America um, as a whole. And of course, Spain within the context of Europe. I, it goes back almost a century or more than a century because for 300 years, there had been one family on the throne of Spain or direct um, uh, relatives, which were the Habsburgs, who also were um, the leaders of what's called the Holy Roman Empire and became eventually the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And in 1700, the last Spanish Habsburg king, uh, Charles II, he dies, and he dies without an heir. And so that brings about a big struggle, of course, you know, when there's an empty throne, there's lots of people who want to take control of it. And basically the upshot is that a French family, the Bourbons, who actually to this day are still the same family that's on the throne of Spain, the Bourbon family wins out and now you have a French family on the throne in Spain, right? And so um, that means two things. One, that there's, there's sort of a break in succession, that there's, there's a new way of doing things. There's somebody on the throne who's not born in Spain, who's, whose family hasn't been there for hundreds of years. And secondly, because France is the center of what we call the Enlightenment, right? This new way of thinking that, that really puts a lot of emphasis on human reason, right? Um, this, this also introduces a new way of thinking into how the Spanish govern Latin America, this govern their empire, not just Latin America. And when I say an emphasis on reason, it's not like prior to that, people didn't use reason, but there's this idea that really through human reason, you can, we can really come to know just about everything. And if, if we apply our reason really well, that life will be very orderly and um, things will go much better than they have in the past. And that's when the encyclopedias start coming out, etc. So the, the new Spanish monarchs, the Bourbons, they introduce this way of doing things into how they govern their colonies or how they govern their empire. And the empire, the Spanish empire is very far flung. So we're not just talking about um, uh, Spain and Portugal. Well, it, Portugal is independent at this time. We're not just talking about Europe, we're talking about South America, North America, Central America. We're also talking about the Philippines, so Asia. So it's a huge, vast area. And up until this time, 
the way that the Habsburgs, the previous rulers of Spain, had tended to govern was what we're going to do is the important thing is that everybody acknowledge who's the king, who's the emperor, that the king and emperor are in Spain, and that usually there's a viceroy who's his representative. But beyond that, we pretty much let local people run things, and we pretty much uh, try and incorporate local traditions into how things are done. Because that's also a good way to keep people happy, you know, if you sort of say, look, you can keep your old um, village, you can keep your old, for example, with Indian people, you can keep your old village organizations, etc. But just there's this, the king is in Spain and you have to send tribute to him, etc. So it's kind of like a little bit like the Roman Empire in some ways in terms of letting, giving people autonomy and some cultural freedoms as long as they respect certain elements of control. Yeah, I think very much so. I think, and and it's, it's not a uh, coincidence that the king, the Habsburg king, was the Holy Roman Emperor, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, and it was a very paternalistic. So the the model was a family that the king as the father, and uh, everybody else as his children. And of course, the church played a big role in that. The the, the Catholic Church being also a, a model where you have. The Pope and priests, bishops, etc., who who function as as fathers, oftentimes, right? And there's that that kind of model. But the Bourbons had a different way of looking at things, uh, and they were very much about centralized authority. They were very much about okay, we're going to think things through, and we're going to come up with the most efficient way to organize things, and that means also uh, removing a lot of local autonomy, and making sure that um, that the rules and regulations that come out of Madrid, say in this case, get translated into the local territories. So people start to chafe at this. And the people who most start to chafe at this way of doing things, and once again I'm talking all over Latin America, uh, are the European descendants especially, the criollos, right, the people whose families uh, were pretty much pure Spanish, right, and they were the ones who already had most power in society, you know, um, and they sort of enjoyed this idea of not a ton of interference from, from, the, from the mother country, from Spain, but Starting in the 1700s, there's a lot more interference, and there's a lot more uh, suspicion from Madrid, from the capital, of people who are born in the New World. They, they don't. It becomes a lot harder for them to rise to the to the ranks of um, uh, important roles in society. They'd much rather um, the Spanish crown at this point. Much rather have somebody born in Spain send them over then trust somebody who, who's from the Americas at this point. So this sort of sentiment goes on. And also the other thing is um, the, the, the new way, this, this new enlightenment way of looking at things is not so keen on the church. That before there was a, there was a big, um, there was a lot of 
collaboration between the church and the crown and there's less so because the crown now ha you know thinks of the church as part of the state and and it really should be following our orders so people in the americas who tended to be uh, more conservative more traditional started to say well hmm this we don't like how uh, this whole new way of looking at the church is is uh, being imposed on us. So these two things start to create a lot of unrest amongst uh, Spanish Americans, Latin Americans, mostly from the upper classes because they're the ones who are, are really uh, care most about power, right? Um, and people begin, and, and then you know another huge event happens, which which really. Um, which really causes a lot of consternation in the New World, which is the expulsion of the Jesuit order. You know, the Jesuits were a very important uh, Catholic religious group. Um, priests uh, who originated, the order originated in Spain in the, in the 16th century uh, by a man named um, Ignatius of Loyola, who was an ex-soldier, became a priest, dedicated his life to uh, spreading the gospel spreading Catholicism and in Latin America in Europe but also in Latin America the Jesuits became very prominent as an order especially as teachers they founded universities they educated um, a lot of students especially the upper classes of both um, criollos and indigenous people and they had missions throughout Latin America but they began to be seen with a lot of suspicion in Europe um, they began to be accused of plotting against the crowns of Europe. And at a certain point, uh, the king of Spain ordered them expelled from uh, Spanish, from his dominions in uh, the Americas. And this is in, 16, in 1767, right? And so the Jesuits were very popular. And, uh, and in fact, that's why we have Franciscan missions in California, because the Jesuits were expelled and the Franciscans were asked to take over their missions in California. So all of these things are causing a lot of um, frustration among the, once again, among the upper classes in Spanish America. And then, of course, uh, new ideas are spreading about democracy. Uh, not everybody believes in them, but some do. Uh, but a lot whatever your your location on the on the spectrum of ideology there's a lot of frustration with Spain and how they're how they're um, governing their territories in the new world so then what happens this uh, upstart French general named Napoleon Bonaparte uh, starts yeah you heard of him right yeah. <laughs> a little guy with, always has his hand in his in his shirt yep you know napoleon after after the french revolution he he becomes the most powerful general in europe and he he's he's taking over uh, huge swaths of territory in europe and in 1808 he his armies uh go into portugal and along the way they stop in spain and occupy spain and the Spanish um, royal family is forced to flee, and Napoleon uh, installs his brother Joseph on the throne, right? And if you go to if you go to Madrid, you know you'll, there's a big uh, billboard, neon billboard for Tio Pepe brandy, and that's uh, in honor of uh, 
or in, in honor, jokingly in honor of, of Joseph Jose Bonaparte, uh, Pepe, his brother. And so this is the, this, this, so then people in the Americas are thinking, okay, so the, the king of Spain is now in exile. We've got an invader. Um, we've got Napoleon occupying the country. What are we going to do? Are we going to fight for Spain? Spain is occupied. Or is this now the time to make a move and really assert independence? And that's really what starts to happen is that all over Latin America, um, independence movements spring up, including in Mexico. And, um, you know, between 1810 and 1820, you have, you have all of these, uh, what were territories of the Spanish crown, now uh, breaking off under uh, generals like Simon Bolivar or um, uh, Miguel de San Martin down in the south, you know, uh, down in, south, in the south of south, the southern cone, South America. And to make a long story short, uh, by the time Napoleon is defeated and uh, the king of Spain is allowed to return in 1814, people have moved on in Latin America. And not only that, but the king of Spain, when he does return, uh, Fernando VII, um, who people were really looking forward to, uh, to be this new forward-thinking ruler, he comes back and he really, um, when he returns, he, is, he very much represses the movements both in Spain toward more democracy and in Latin America. And that's what really pushes things um, to war. And like I said, by 1820, 21, um, Spain is not able to, to defeat these insurrections. It's, it's, Latin America is too far away. Uh, things, the, the upper classes of Spanish America have, have decided that independence is the way we want to go. Um, and there are different reasons that different groups have, but they're all kind of united in the fact that they don't um, that they don't want to remain as part of Spain, which is also interesting because um, indigenous people, for the most part, tend to be uh, loyal to the king of Spain, tend to want to maintain the traditional uh, system. That seems of course, like a, a, a really strong parallel with, uh, if we think about kind of the American Revolution with the English colonies, um, you know, and, and thinking about the revolution in terms of these, you know, who originated it and what ideas were being promulgated and uh, kind of the upper classes really pushing for something. Um, do you see a lot of similarities between the Mexican War for Independence and the American Revolutionary War? Yeah, um, definitely. And I think, you know, since, since um, in Latin America, the, the wars for independence are later, and they definitely look to people like Washington as as models, right? In fact, there's a um, there's a, a a famous essay by Montalvo, a Chilean writer, about Washington and Bolivar. Bolivar, who was the big liberator of Latin America, of South America, and how those two are very similar, but had very different circumstances to deal with. Of course, Mexico is its own particular situation because the the beginnings of Mexican independence start with this priest, Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla, right? 
uh, in Guanajuato who very much leads uh, an indigenous revolt. Most of his uh, people, most of his soldiers are, are, are indigenous uh, people from the area. And of course, that rebellion is eventually crushed. But the idea of, of independence, you know, after 1810, the idea of independence in Mexico is, is still very strong. And of course, uh, other leaders come up later to take his place. And once again, by 1821, um, there's, there's a new uh, government in Mexico. But it's a, it's a very conservative one also, though. Very, the, the man who winds up um, also like in Latin America, the man who winds up emerges as the leader of, of Mexican independence is a general named um, Miguel Iturbide, and he's very conservative. Uh, what he wants to see, and his supporters want to see Mexico as an empire, as a monarchy that's connected to Spain, maybe like as a sister, um, but that's independent. And um, the uh, Catholicism is, is established as the the religion of Mexico, and it's very much a, a very traditional leaning uh, government. But he doesn't last long, and over the next few years, Mexico becomes a, a republic, a federal republic um, that goes in a much different direction than uh, Iturbide wanted to go in. Yeah, I mean, that kind of, you know, that's the another another question we're going to talk about is the is the changes that happen after independence i mean we'll we'll get to in a later podcast talking about uh, secularization and the mission system but can you maybe just introduce us to that topic and how things start to change after independence sure well you know there's a lag time too and now if we, if we talk about california right um there's a lag time of one or two years um before news gets north right (laughs) so people are going about and remember california alta california baja california these are these are the far northern provinces it's the frontier so people are off and it's very sparsely populated so uh, people aren't paying a lot of attention to what's going on other in mexico other than the fact that um you know in 1810 because of the insurrection Uh, in the state of civil war that's happening in Mexico, funds are cut off to help support the missions and support the presidios. So the thing that really hits people where it hurts is the fact that supplies aren't coming in uh, from Mexico. And and that's one thing that people often uh, get wrong is that supplies didn't come to California from Spain, they came up from Mexico. And so uh, if Mexico was in turmoil, then supplies weren't coming. And so that's when you have the beginnings of sort of this black market and American ships out of Boston would come around the horn, you know, and and sell both buy and sell goods uh, in California. And that's how how people got uh, got by. Right. Hmm. And. And then the the labor situation uh, at the missions and the presidios gets much more difficult because 
Now the missions are are asked to support the presidios because the presidios weren't self-sufficient. It's a military fort and some of the soldiers that lived there grew their own food but it just wasn't enough. So now the missions have to supply materials and that's when you start getting a lot of uh, indigenous rebellions, right? Because the, the workload uh, becomes much heavier and um, native people become much more um, what's the word you know much more resentful about all of the work that they have to do so so yeah but in 18 1821 22 the news finally gets to Alta California that it's now part of Mexico and that causes a big division in society several divisions uh, one is because the priests of the missions were by and large almost 99 percent having been born in Spain right so they didn't recognize the New Mexican government as legitimate um, and so they held back they wouldn't most of them wouldn't take the oath to the New Mexican government and then the um, the local people the local um, Hispanic people, right, um, looked on it with suspicion as well because they'd always been sort of the the poor younger brothers way off in the hinterlands, and so they they didn't know what to think of these new um, this new government, and then eventually, what what begins happening is exactly um, the Mexican Parliament passes laws saying you know. Um, if you're not Mexican, i.e. if you are not born in Mexico, you need to leave the country. Now, um, there's, there's a big history surrounding, you know, passing laws and then actually enforcing them, right? So they passed a lot of laws. Uh, they weren't always enforced. But in, in California, many of especially in Northern California, many of the Franciscan priests, the Spanish Franciscan priests left, went back to Spain. And so uh, Mexican board priests, uh, Franciscan priests were sent to take their place. And um, Mexican born governors were sent to Alta California. And so um, with time, that, that also caused a lot of friction and the Congress in Mexico began to start investigating laws and passing laws about the missions um, because the original idea of the missions well the idea of the missions was always that they were a transitory a temporary institution and all over Latin America this had happened missions would eventually become towns and um, the mission church became the town church and the Franciscan priest went away and a parish priest would come and so the idea was that the the Indian people there would then control that land it didn't always happen um, so smoothly but that's the general pattern and so the Mexican Parliament decided or Congress decided that you know we've had missions in Alta California um, for 25 odd years and um, it's time it's time to turn them into pueblos and then that then they started passing those laws there was a lot of resistance in Alta California to that uh, both from the Franciscans who said well the Indians aren't ready 
and from the local people who who also kind of said the same thing but by the mid 1830s the the government in Mexico had had decided look at we're not going to uh, push this off any longer so 1833 and into 1834 was really the beginning of okay we're going to change the mission system we're going to secularize it the term yes well it seems it seems like you could maybe confuse it a little bit if you make it a purely theological conversation about you know but what you're describing is a is kind of the natural process that was going to happen anyway and mm -hmm. they're just accelerating it because of you know uh, the need for these communities to be self-sustaining is that what kind of what you're describing yeah yeah I mean to be fair in throughout Latin America I mean uh, yeah to be fair the Spanish government had also wanted to do the same thing um, but they um, but they had never really been able to and so the Mexican government decided yeah we're gonna we're gonna do this because this was the plan all along and then the question, of course, was, well, is the situation ripe? Is, is this the right time to do it? Are the Native people ready? Um, and that's, that's how the Franciscans sort of answered. They said, well, they're not ready yet. They're not ready to govern themselves. <laughs> yes, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we've, we've had quite a few episodes talking about, you know, uh, different Native groups in different regions of uh, California and... Uh, They'd been doing it okay for a while by then, but you know, you know, we're not yeah. we're not here to judge. We're just here to tell the story, right? Um, ultimately, right, right. and yeah. um, so I've and on that note, I've kind of structured this uh, story to kind of look at these different epochs, you know, these these different periods. You know, I, I mean, you've got the period of large mammals before indigenous people arrive across the. Uh, across the land bridge, you know, and then you've got this indigenous period uh, where uh, these travelers are uh, controlling the environment. And then you have the Spanish period and now we're transitioning into the Mexican period. But as a kind of a, a way to add some punctuation to this period, um, wh why do you think it's important to understand uh, the Spanish history in Alta California uh, for your average listener? Um, why, why do you think this part of, I mean, why don't you just start at 18, you know, why don't you just start at the end of the Mexican American war, um, and just start there? What, why is it important to study these, the beginnings? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it goes back to two things. The first is the old, right? The old adage, those who don't understand history are, are cursed to repeat it, uh, because when you really look at span at the Spanish history of California, a lot of the dynamics that we experience now were there in the sense that um, it was a multicultural society. That is, it wasn't just uh, Spaniards and Indians, let's say, but the very people who were called Spaniards who came north uh, from what is today Mexico were mixed ethnicity people. Not only that, but you had uh, constant uh, back and forth with Asia, with the Pacific. So you had the Manila Galleon that went uh, to the Philippines, to China, to Japan and back. And you also had Asian people um, on, those, on those vessels coming in and even living in California. So trade with Asia 
was always big and the Asian element as it still is you um, you had uh, like I said a multiracial society you had um, you had all of the the climatic things that we deal with fires droughts um, earthquakes uh, all of these things California has been dealing with for forever so you know when when we have a big earthquake we have a big drought we have um, you know disruptions it's good to look back and say wow this this was happening 200 years ago or when we think about uh, immigration and we think how uh, we've been on California has been a, a corridor of human migration for centuries well even before the Spanish you know for maybe millennia north and south and then, you know, on a, on a simpler level, it just helps us to understand where we are. So uh, I live, um, you know, I was living in a town named Santa Clara. Why is it called Santa Clara? You know, teaching at San Jose State University. And then you realize that, well, that's, that's, the, that's a town, that's a city that's been in California since 1777. So you understand that our roots are deep they're much deeper and you know for me I teach at a, at a university um, as a large uh, uh, Latino pop population and for me uh, it's important when I teach classes like this to, to show people look um, especially people who whose families came here recently or who were born uh, in, in Mexico or somewhere else like this is your home this isn't you're not an alien you're not a foreigner uh, this is this is your home this is your place so um, so yeah I think there it just gives us a, uh, an understanding of the complexity and richness of of what California is yeah I, I completely agree I I, I had a little a lot of fun researching my episode on the mission in Santa Barbara I've got uh, a brother that lives there and uh, just learning about how they uh, dealt with their water system mm. and how they had to retrofit their church building after a major earthquake. Right. Just, right I was right. just feeling like, well, this could have happened last week. I mean, these are the topics that we talk about today yeah. is water and water and earthquakes. <laughs> right. Um, exactly. So it's, so it's almost like, you know, thing, you know, things never really change, do they? You know, they, we're all we're all still talking about the same things. Right. I mean that's only half true. Things have changed dramatically, but uh, yeah, it, they change, the, but they they stay the same. <laughs> yeah, it's the Mark Twain quote about history rhyming, right? Doesn't yeah, be itself, but it rhymes. Um, point. So, um, are there any things that you're specifically interested in in California history? I mean, I know that you're interested in the early parts. Uh, what what are your interests these days? What are you exploring? Uh, you know, actually, the last few years, uh, I've been really focused on the Mexican era, uh, from, so from 1821 on, because uh, there's a lot written, uh, relatively speaking, there's a lot written about the Spanish um, time in California, but the, the era when California was part of Mexico is, is a lot harder to get a grasp on, there's a lot less written. So I've been I've been looking particularly at the San Jose Santa Clara area during that period that time period between um, you know 1821 
and up through the early years of statehood because that's the time when those big ranchos right are there's a huge transfer of land from from Mexican Californians to Anglo-American Californians right mm -hmm. and I'm I'm working on a book right now about a woman whose family inherited or she and her brothers and sisters inherited a big rancho in what is today Walnut Creek and how her life evolved uh, over over dec several decades because she um, she had a fascinating life she was married briefly to a Prussian nobleman who had come uh, to Northern California then later she married an American so she was widowed twice um, and she lived through Spain, Mexico, and the U.S. So she saw it all, and she she saw her land uh, basically disappear, you know, um, in a span of just a few years. So that's what I'm working on right now. That whole that whole time period, that transfer between Mexico and the U.S. Also because I was born. Uh, in my early years in the East Bay, and so that's really the area that. Um, that I grew up in. So it's interesting to delve into that. Yeah, I really, I, I, and no matter where you are in California, I think it's, it's important to explore where you're from and the rich history that's oftentimes, you know, people don't know about. I mean, where I am in Fresno, you know, there, there's a rich history and not a lot written about it. And, yeah. um, but there's, but there's unending documents, unending primary sources that, uh, open up a whole world to you. And, um, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, I, I think everyone needs to invest and understand the history of their own neighborhoods, essentially. And I yeah, think absolutely. that could do a lot, do a lot for, you know, especially given what we're talking about these days, you know, with, <laughs> with our protests going on, understanding yeah. our neighborhoods and exactly. who lives there and where they come from, you know, that's exactly. Uh, absolutely. Some people just, I mean, we can talk about the East Bay, but some people just move into a neighborhood and, you know, they saw some, uh, uh, home design on architectural digest and they're chain they're tearing down a hundred year old colonial you know that or a bungalow that uh, has such a rich history and it's just yeah oh yeah. i mean getting like people the story of juana briones yeah getting people interested in history is tough but i think once when you do it when people really get invested um and then they appreciate and cherish something that has a legacy it, it has so much meaning for their lives I agree. That's, that's just the way I see it. So I want to talk about Spanish for a second because mm -hmm. um, one of my challenges in this podcast is my ineptitude with the language. Yeah. Um, so so how did how did you learn Spanish? And uh, do you have any? Uh, I don't want to say tips. That's not what I'm asking. But you know, uh, suggestions because it is it is uh, you know it would be it would be very important if you're living in California to learn to speak Spanish. Yeah, uh, you should. You should be bilingual if you live in California. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, as somebody who I learned Spanish uh, late in life, you know, in my in my college years, really, and, and into my 20s. So it's definitely doable. The impetus was, um, you know, my family background is Portuguese and Croatian. You know, it's a very actually California immigrant uh, story. Uh, so the idea of speaking other languages was was there, though we weren't raised speaking Portuguese or speaking Croatian. But I heard other languages growing up. But what re really got me started interested in learning Spanish was um, I went to a new high school 
when I was a kid in uh, freshman in high school in the Napa Valley, and in the Napa Valley at that time uh, in the 80s, you either owned a vineyard or you worked in one, and so my father was a mailman, so I didn't really fall into either one of those categories, <laughs> but. Um, the people that really became my friends when I was new in, in school were um, all uh, children of uh, vineyard workers, you know, or they worked. My friend Ramiro Lopez, he had his own, he and his dad and brother, they had their own business, uh, pruning vineyards, etc. So I had all these friends who spoke Spanish and I wanted to learn it. And um, so I took class, took high school Spanish, uh, wasn't very motivated. Um, and I have a video uh, on LinkedIn where I talk about, you know, a, a good app is better than a bad teacher. So <laughs> a bad teacher can demotivate you. But yes. but my method is just, you know, the cardinal rule of, of language acquisition is exposure, you know, uh, input. So input followed by practice. So the important thing is to understand why you want to learn it. So if you want to learn it to speak primarily speak with people, um, then then you, you focus on that. You, you focus on uh, finding ways to practice speaking, right? With other people. Uh, uh, the other thing is, if you primarily want to learn it to understand, read, listen, then you do a lot of that. Um, but to make, to cut to the chase, I would, I would get a, a phrase book, like a, a, a and I mean in physical book that you carry around in your pocket, uh, a little small phrase book that tells you how to answer the phone, um, you know, those kind of little things that you don't learn. A, an old uh, college textbook, grammar textbook, so you can get the basics uh, down. And then, uh, so you want to practice those phrases with people. And then, uh, and then you want to get the basics of the grammar down now, not to know it perfectly but just to understand how things work you know how you say I or you or he or she or it and then then go at it read a lot and uh, watch we're so lucky now with uh, with all the you know Netflix Amazon Prime etc there's so many um, f subtitled foreign uh, movies and series you can watch watch those with subtitles and then just just get exposure, exposure and practice. You know, it's 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 like a sport too. It's like you know, uh, you know, a football player who who learns. You got to learn the playbook, but then you got to play a lot of games. You know, so that's that's the thing. Just keeping at it. Yeah, I, I see that, and that it, I think the challenge is, uh, you know, some people can get stuck on their Duolingo app or they're stuck on the whatever, and they it. And they gamify it to where they, you know, it's all about getting to that level or, you know, mm -hmm. having it tell you you've mastered it versus actually getting out and practicing. And for me, looking looking dumb or sounding dumb has never been a concern. It's, you know, it's just, it's finding that time to really have that uh, exposure. Um, yeah. That's but it, the yeah, it sounds like, it sounds like just getting out there and, and, and trying with me. Yeah. Yeah, because it's a muscle, you know. You, if if your main goal is to speak, then you got to speak, you know. And and yeah, because sometimes people don't. Um, other, you know, native Spanish speakers, you know, maybe they don't want to, or but you got to like convince them. Hey, I really want to learn this, and and then they'll 
they'll do that. You know, they'll they'll come back at you. So you, but you, you also studied some Spanish in Spain, or you did some work in Spain. Yeah, I went to live in Spain. Uh, I did a study abroad year in Madrid, and that was um, really to solidify my fluency. You know, yeah. um, I got to the point where I was good. You know, just by practicing a lot with people, taking um, a lot of classes and reading, etc. But I knew that if I ever wanted to go to grad school and be a professor of Spanish, I needed to get to native level. And for me, um, I had to jumpstart that by going and living in a place where I wasn't going to be hearing English, where I was going to be forced to speak Spanish all the time. Well, uh, I hope if you take anything away from this podcast, it's the, it's it's our challenge uh, to 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 learn Spanish. If you're living in California, <laughs> learn Spanish. I think there would be a lot of misunderstandings uh, in our society that would be remedied if 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 more of us were bilingual. I think um, so, and it's never been easier, and there's never been more access than yeah, now. Absolutely. All right, so let's we're going to finish this by. Uh, uh, talking about some books. Um, so if you, uh, I have a lot of people that are coming back to study of history who listen to this podcast and um, maybe want to explore subjects more at a, a deeper level than these 20 to 40 minute episodes. What are some books that you'd recommend to people that you enjoy that cover California history? You know, you know, look at my bookshelf. <laughs> the um, just an overall Cal. I mean, maybe you probably know this one. The overall California history, the the one by Kevin Starr, I, I think uh-huh. is great. Um, that's just a great, and and he's such a good writer that um, he doesn't always get everything perfect, but the narrative is so engaging that you you don't care. <laughs> you know? Yes, yeah, it's those narrative historians that can be really great, like Barbara Tuckman, mm-hmm. um, where you where you know, because I, I think sometimes when people take college history classes, their professors might assign them some kind of analytical book where right. it's looking at, you know, it's deconstructing political movements or whatever it is, and they're not actually getting the narrative. And so they walk away from the class not really knowing the kind of the order of events of things that happened. Right, right. You need to context, be able to contextualize things, just put them in their, in their correct timeline, for example. Yeah. What about something early California history related that you've enjoyed? You know, really for me, the two, uh, the two books that Rosemary Beebe and Robert Sinkowitz put together are really helpful. The first is called Lands of Promise and Despair. And those are all uh, primary sources, but they're put together. They're, they're selections from primary sources and you know original documents translated, but they're put together in a chronological order. And they're they 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 have these great introductions to each of them, to each chapter. So those are wonderful. That one is wonderful. Um, Lands of Promise and Despair, and the other one is called Testimonios, which is the first-hand accounts uh, by women, actually, um, in the 19th century. You know, the great historian Hubert Howe Bancroft sent guys around to interview surviving Californios, and, um, you know, all of those are in the Bancroft Library, the, those, those um, oral testimonies. But uh, Rosemary and Bob, what they did was they took selected ones and like I said all from women 
And the reason I say that that's interesting is because you get a real picture into day-to-day life, you know, in early California. And so um, those, once again, each of them has a great um, introduction, context, background about this person's family. And then each of them tells her story, you know, about life in Spanish and Mexican California. Those are just great. Uh, and they're primary sources, too. So you're you're really getting things generally, you know, firsthand. Okay. Well, um, before we go, um, we've already mentioned the uh, Frontier Project, but where else can people find your work? And can you give us a timeline of when your book's coming out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hopefully the book will be out in the next couple of years. Um, okay. I'm still researching it and, and writing. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the California Frontier Project, CaliforniaFrontier.net. You can also uh, find me. Uh, we California Frontier Project has a Facebook page. Um, you can find me at uh, San Jose State's um, uh, faculty page, SGSU, and my name. And I also have an Instagram account that I, I try and uh, uh, keep up. But, uh, oh, and then finally, you know, like you, I have a podcast, the California Frontier Project podcast, and we're just rounding out uh, season two um, with about 10 episodes. The last couple of ones will be dropping in the next couple of weeks, and and that's, you know, in all those places, uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and and Google Podcasts. Yeah, I really recommend uh, recommend the podcast. Uh, it's, It's one of our... It, I look at it as our, our sister podcast in this world, and uh, um, we're on the same mission, and the mission is to get people interested in their state's history. So uh, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for interviewing me. It was a joy. <laughs> it was so much fun to have Dr. Basich come on, and I hope to have him on in future episodes, especially about the Mexican period, which he is an expert in. And um, I hope you enjoyed this episode and got a lot out of it. Um, And I hope these interspersed interviews episodes um, you've enjoyed. Um, I'd like to keep doing them. I really feel like it enriches this podcast. So, uh, again, you can support us on Patreon, and the Patreon link is on our page. Uh, You can also support us by hitting subscribe as well as giving us a rating and a review. The more ratings and reviews we have, the more likely people will click the play button. So uh, if you could do that, that would be great. Um, And until next time. (music) 